Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Great. Thanks so much for having me this evening. Uh, it's a great pleasure, great pleasure to be with you here in uh, Oregon. It's my first time in Oregon and first time in Eugene and at the University uh, of Oregon as well. I'm happy to get out of D.C., which yesterday was in the 70s, and here uh, in Oregon a bit more, uh, I guess they tell me it's like Oregon uh, <laughs> today, so it was good. Isolation, quarantine, separation. All of those uh, realities uh, have new meaning for those of us who live through COVID times. And for your generation, for better or for worse, you came of age in that separation and in that social distance uh, life, let's say. We learned the hard way what separation from family and friends means and we learned it as a, a real cruel phenomenon. A, sim a similar phenomenon of separation can happen with God. Sin separates. Sin separates us, separates us from God and from other human beings. How we fix that separation is the subject of this evening's talk on the sacrament of confession. We're going to look at how this sacrament of the church, the sacrament of penance, restores and strengthens our relationship with God and with his church. Have you ever been slowed down or paralyzed by recognition of your own moral failure? Have you ever had that agony of knowing that you've messed up, that you're to blame, and that you don't know how to get out of the quagmire? You know that you should do better, you should make amends. You should try to make things right the next time around. But when you've been stuck in sin and stuck by sin, change seems difficult. Sometimes it seems impossible. So how is the change going to happen when we feel stuck? The Catholic Sacrament of Confession provides a way to get out of the quagmire for God to move us. He gives us his grace. He starts the process to get us out, unstuck from the quagmire, so that we recognize our sinfulness, we have contrition, and then we confess our sins to God's Catholic priest. And then the priest, as God's minister, forgives us. Then the sinner does a good work in order to heal the wounds caused by his sins. That, in a nutshell, is what's going on in the sacrament of penance. I should add, too, before I go any further, that the sacrament goes by at least three different names. Confession, penance, reconciliation. It's the same sacrament, but each name kind of gets at a different angle. I'll use the different words interchangeably, but it's the same thing. So don't worry if you know, I say one without the other. It's the same thing. For my talk, hopefully, I think you all have three different handouts. Uh, one my primary handout. It's got a diagram, my artistic creativity, 
uh, on the front. Uh, I don't want to hear any laughter. I see. I hear some laughter about my artistic creativity. Okay. So, oh, thank you. I know it's great. It's gonna. It's gonna win. It's gonna win the. I don't know some prize. Um, secondly, there's a handout entitled "A Guide to Confession." It's got. It's got a real artistic work on front reproduction. And then lastly, there's one that's entitled "Acts That Are Intrinsically Gravely Sinful Beyond the Usual Suspects." I'm going to make reference to each of those. If you don't have the handouts, you can get there. There are extra ones over on the chairs and on the table over to my right. I should mention too that for uh, Catholic ducks here at the University of Oregon, the sacrament of confession is available on Saturdays from 4 p.m. Uh, on, and also by appointment. Don't be afraid of uh, the priests here. I'm sure they're very friendly, and anything that you uh, may want to say to them, you may think, well, it might be scary to say, but probably they've heard it a zillion times already, and they probably have heard worse. So, uh, have courage. In terms of what I want to do this evening, first off, I want to give a quick sketch using my fantastic artistic abilities to describe what's going on in the sacrament of penance. Secondly, Knowing what's involved, I want to kind of take a step back and ask the more fundamental question of why we should go to confession. And then lastly, I'll conclude with some ways that we can grow as regular practitioners of the sacrament. Now, talking about the sacrament of penance can um, seem very uh, scary sometimes. It can seem very direct. I do not want to presume that you here are bank robbers or any sort of big sinners, I presume that you're all living like angels uh, and on the side of God and on the side of the angels. But maybe there are other students here at the University of Oregon who are not as holy as you are. Um, I don't know, like maybe there's an Oregon duck uh, who starts, you know, looking at an Oregon State girl. Uh-oh. And I know, oh, yeah. So, like, if a Donald Duck starts falling for Bernice of Oregon State, it's like, uh, it could be a big sin. Um, or let's say, I don't know, you know, there may be some Daisy Ducks of University of Oregon who start, I don't know, start having a swamp fight with other girls. So... Things happen. Now, probably not among any of you, but maybe outside, you know, such things happen. So what, what happens with them if they're Catholics and they need to atone for their sins? That's what we want to talk about tonight. Let's look at how the sacrament works in general. So this is, we're going to use the handout with my artistic diagram on the front. The whole thing, the whole kind of big diagram, that whole thing is a sacrament of penance. But we can also break it down into its component parts and give the stages of the action because there's a kind of dynamic to this sacrament. Some of the diagram is a bit technical. I've got some Latin terms thrown in there for those who are interested. Do not worry if you do not understand at all. Uh, The diagram is just a visual way to get out into uh, the open all the sacraments aspects in one place so that we can then kind of show the movement of the sacrament. 
So when we sin, we put ourselves in the gutter, below, down, in the mud, in the swamp. So our diagram starts at the bottom left. But first off, how do we get in the gutter? That happens when we sin. Sin is when we do something against God and our neighbors. So when we choose to give our love exclusively to someone or something less than God, and when we act against faith or reason. So we can sin in a small way, that's called a venial or light sin. We can also sin in a big way, what's called a deadly or mortal sin. So what is a mortal sin as opposed to a venial sin? What's a big sin as compared to a, uh, a venial sin? If you will, I want to use an analogy of driving down a highway. So if you're driving down a straight highway, if you want to get to your destination quickest, you drive straight. So by analogy, God wants us to drive straight toward him. If you start swerving down the highway, and you don't have one of those new cars that like, you know, bings, you know, when you get too close to uh, the edge, if you start going swervy, you're not going as fast as possible. Like if you're driving Indy 500 cars and you're trying to win the race, you gotta be able to drive straight on the straightaway. Same thing with getting to God. But you start swerving, that's kind of like a venial sin. You're not getting to God as fast as you should be. A mortal sin is when you've turned the car around and you're going in the opposite direction. You've done a 180, a UE, and now you're facing the wrong direction. God is in your rear view mirror. That's not what should be happening. That's called, you've done a mortal sin. A mortal sin involves kind of something big in terms of what's called the matter, some, the type of action that is involved. It involves knowledge on our part and involves consent on our part, our will. If one of those pieces is missing, if we don't have, let's say, a grave action involved, we don't have the intellectual use of our noggins involved, if we don't have our will involved, there's no mortal sin. Usually, sin sticks in our memories and they nag at us, but sometimes we forget our sins. And sometimes sin can even make us forget. So if someone were to get drunk or stoned, uh, they go to one of those stores, you know, that you see in Oregon and now in DC and other places with like leaves on them. <laughs> and they're not for tree huggers. Uh, you know, there's other stuff, other sorts of plant material or frankly non-plant material in there. That person who uses that stuff may not remember other stupid antics that were done even when they weren't drunk or stoned. Sin can affect our memories. So sometimes we need to make what's called an examination of conscience. We need to wake ourselves up and recognize our sins. So if you look at the handout that I gave to you called A Guide to Confession, the one with, I think that's uh, Rembrandt, uh, a better artist than myself, actually no, it's uh, someone else, uh, Guarcino, excuse me. Uh, basically, this is a cheat sheet that is a virtuous cheat sheet, a good cheat sheet, not an evil one to cheat on a test. Uh, this cheat sheet describes how to go to confession and how to prepare oneself. And it includes an examination of conscience uh, on page two, the backside of the handout. Basically a way to prod our memories about what sins one may have committed in the past. 
Now, it can also be the case that one can be complacent or accepting about sin and that we don't recognize something that is sinful. So for that, there's the last handout that I gave out, the one that's entitled Acts That Are Intrinsically Gravely Sinful Beyond the Usual Suspects. The genesis of that handout is when I was working in a college setting, like here at University of Oregon. I used to be a chaplain at the University of Virginia. Uh, and basically, uh, the priests, we were kind of working with the students and the young adults. We were finding that, well, if they had not been raised in a Catholic environment, they may not have recognized certain things as seriously sinful or not. Uh, so with uh, the help of other priests, I developed this handout uh, in order to kind of get out into the open some things that actually are serious, seriously sinful, uh, but that people may not think about so much anymore. So for instance, uh, for a Catholic to miss Mass on Sundays or Holy Days of Obligation, uh, or for people to use like Ouija boards, stuff like that. Like people are like, oh, is that really simple? Yeah, you know, you want to mess with that stuff. It's not good. Um, so we all probably recognize that like murder is a serious sin, but maybe someone has not recognized, for instance, that use of a Ouija board is seriously sinful. So hence, there's this sheet. Again. Probably all of you are saints. Uh, probably none of you need any of this stuff, but I just throw it out there in case anyone does. Probably it's just maybe Virginia students are you know, just not as fast as Oregon students. I don't know, but here it is. Now there's, in, there's a risk, there's a caveat that I need to say. There's a risk in giving you this that we don't have time to kind of like go through the list and explain things. Um, so but I'm going to presume your intelligence and ability to kind of take things in stride and kind of figure these things out. So for instance, like on the back where it says like that not recycling is not necessarily gravely sinful, that can kind of strike people as like surprising nowadays. But the idea is not to say that you should not recycle. You should recycle. It's good to recycle. But for instance, if you find yourself with an empty soda can and there's no recycling bin around, and you know you should not litter, so what are you supposed to do? There is a normal trash can around, okay, throughout the soda can and the trash bin. You're not committing a mortal sin by doing that. Now I'm not suggesting that you dump a ton of industrial waste into the city river I'm not saying that you should like euthanize your annoying great aunts. Euthanasia is a grave sin. So, but the point is that sometimes our civil society may tell us that certain things uh, are bad or that they are possibly good when we have to say no. So like assisted suicide, euthanasia, some people legally would say, oh yeah, that's all fine. And we have to say, well, no. So, and it can work both ways. So recycling, yeah, should be good, but if you don't recycle a soda can because there's no recycling bin around, you're not going to hell for that. Okay, we've talked enough about sin. Let's talk about salvation. The process of healing and elevation from sin means that the sacrament of penance 
And our diagram, back to the original handout, our diagram and the sacrament move us up. We want to go up from that quagmire of sin. So we want to go up and we're going to go to the right. So follow the arrows here in my handout, in my drawing. So we're going to start at the bottom. We're going to start with the virtue of penance. Virtues counteract vices. So the virtue of penance promotes and moderates our grief for past sins so th such that we want to eliminate the personal blame for our sins. We want to say, I reject that sin in my life. I want to live in a godly fashion, and I'm going to make things right. So under this virtue, we can atone for our sins. We can do so in many ways. So for instance, if you've hurt your friend, the virtue of penance instructs you to say, I'm going to go talk to my friend and ask for forgiveness. Joe, I'm sorry that I ran over your toe with my car. Uh, that's not a good thing. I shouldn't have done that. Like, I should avoid your toes. You can say acts of prayer. Uh, excuse me, you can do prayers of reparation for your friend Joe. Um, let's say you've stolen something. You could donate to the poor uh, as an act of uh, repentance. If someone is not a Christian and they recognize that they have sinned, they can ask for the sacrament of baptism which is about repentance from past life of sin. And for those of us who are already Christian, we can practice the sacrament of penance. So the sacrament of penance builds on this foundation of the virtue of penance. As Christians, we live the sacrament of penance in a couple of uh, steps. First off, we have contrition. It's, that, it's the virtue of penance, but in a sacramental context. It's, having, again, sorrow for, for all of our past sins, most especially our unforgiven mortal sins. Our sorrow must be all or nothing in the sense that we have to reject all of our sins that cut us off from God. We can't pick and choose. So we can't say, okay, God, I, I regret that I committed adultery against my spouse. That was not something good. But... I don't feel so bad, and I think I was okay for embezzling out of my employer $10 billion, a lot of money. And I defrauded, I defrauded the people because that, that money was supposed to go to the service of uh, the inner city poor, for instance. But I stole that $10 billion. And the governments, they can't find it because I'm so smart. You can't pick and choose in terms of how one has contrition. It's an all-or-nothing sort of thing. Why? Again, think of that analogy of driving on the highway toward God. If you've done a UE, if you've done a 180 turn from God, you're still, you know, God's still in the rearview mirror. And you can't kind of like do like a 90, you can't do like a 45-degree turn, like drive off-road, you know, figure like, okay, if, I, if I'm going, you know, away from God, but if I kind of do like a 45-degree turn, I'm like off-road, I'm like not going away from God as fast. No, no, you're still pointed away from God. So we need to reject all of our past grave sins. We need to choose God. We need to choose God instead of some idol. And that idol could be some sexual object. It could be worldly success or being concerned about worldly success so that we cheat on an exam rather than living godly truth, whatever it may be. Secondly, from that basis of contrition, we uh, confess our sins. We externalize our sorrow to a priest out loud. 
And what needs to be confessed is all of our serious sins in terms of what the sorts of acts were, how many times we did them, and any special circumstances that kind of came into play. So for instance, robbing a bank is different than committing murder. We shouldn't do either one, but one sin is different than the other. So in terms of confession, we say, okay, I robbed a bank as compared to I committed murder. And we say how many times we did it. I robbed five banks. Or if one doesn't quite remember how many times, oh, Father, I can't remember how many banks I, I robbed. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 15. You know, the money just all goes into the same pot, you know, at the end of the day after I robbed them. So I, I can't remember, Father, but it was a couple of banks. And then one can also mention, or one should mention, any important circumstances. So for instance, maybe someone's in a fraternity. So maybe one's roughhousing with one's fraternity brothers, and one trips one's fraternity brothers uh, in kind of fun and as a gag. Well, you know, that's kind of different to trip one's fraternity brother rather than to trip an old lady as she's crossing the street. Like the difference between an old lady crossing the street versus a healthy fraternity brother, that's, that's a different circumstance. Now usually there's some formulae that Catholics use in order to go to confession for that. Again, look at the handout, your cheat sheet, a guide to confession. Uh, if you don't know the formulae, don't worry, just ask the priest. The most important thing for this part of confession is just to manifest to the priest that one is sorry for one's sins and to kind of get it out of one's system. And lastly, there's satisfaction. Uh, satisfaction is trying to make up uh, or trying to show one's sorrow for sins and redress the effects of one's sins that may perdure after confession, after forgiveness. So for instance, if one robs a bank, one needs to give back to the poor people who have been stolen from the money that's been swindled out of the American bank and sent off to a Swiss bank account of the crook, of the robber. So one needs to give back, that's called a restitution. But even apart from that, one has to try to restore the uh, right spiritual and physical order. So one tries to renew uh, the goodness that was there before and that was injured by one's sin. So for instance, if you hurt your friend, you certainly want to say, I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry, Joe, I ran over your toe. But you also try to make it up to Joe by taking him out for ice cream. It's kind of nice, kind of you make up to your friends in terms of doing something a bit extra. That's what's going on with what's called satisfaction. So on the handout there, you can see, kind of see at the bottom box, there's a so-called matter. The penitent does contrition, confession, and satisfaction. And lastly then, in that box, the priest, as the minister of Christ and his church, the priest hears the penitent's contrition and confession of sins. He assigns a satisfactory work to be done by the penitent. And then the priest absolves. He forgives the sinner of his sins. He does so with a particular, form, a particular formula. I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the priest perfects the matter supplied by the penitent. So the penitent, together with the priest, work toward this upward movement out of the quagmire for the sinner's elevation toward God.
And that's what's happening now with our various arrows, kind of moving things up diagonally to the right. From the forgiveness of, from the confession, the contrition, the confession of satisfaction of the penitent plus the priest's absolution, this forgiveness, the person, the penitent, has increased sorrow for his sins. This is a sorrow that is graced by God because God is moving from the top, way up top, uh, top of the diagram. He's moving through all of this, kind of moving everyone in their proper ways. He's bringing about an interior transformation in the penitent so that they have a deeper sorrow for their sins. Oftentimes people, after they leave the confessional, they might say, yeah, I mean, going into the confessional, going in to confess my sins, I knew I should not have robbed that bank. I mean, you know, I, I, mean, I mean, but it was so tempting. So, you know, like, so oftentimes people kind of rationalize. And they're kind of like, well, yeah, okay, I guess I should be sorry. But then after the sacrament, they're like, yeah, that was dumb. I should not have done that. I really, yes, I know deep down I should, I should be a saint. I should try to live in a holy fashion. I should not rob banks. Finally, from all that, we get to the top right, the grace of the sacrament. What is the final effect? It's the forgiveness of sins. From that forgiveness of our individual sins, we are reconciled with God. We are reconciled with the church. Uh, we are freed from eternal punishment. Uh, we have the grace to be a saint, to be a penitent saint. That kind of in a couple of minutes is what's going on in the sacrament of penance. So lots of different aspects, lots of different steps, but all of it is the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of confession. Having seen what happens in this sacrament and the different steps that take place, I now want to take a step back and ask the more, ask the more fundamental question, why would we do all of this? Why would we go to a priest for a confession, for instance? Cannot we just ask God simply and separately to forgive us? Why can't I just go into my room, my bedroom, and say, God, I robbed a bank. Would you please forgive me? Now, we can do that. It's possible. But unfortunately, the reality is that whether forgiveness occurs may be a bit harder to discern. So we could go and uh, I've heard about voodoo donuts. So like, okay, I go to voodoo donuts. Uh, I hear they're really good. They come in like pink boxes and they're like all different flavors. So let's say I go and like buy a dozen and then I eat a dozen. I'm probably gonna feel sorry about that because I've now committed probably, unless I'm like a professional, well, or unless I'm like one of the fantastic University of Oregon football players who can eat a dozen donuts from Voodoo Donuts without any hindrance, for most of us eating a, a dozen of their donuts, we're gonna commit the sin of gluttony. So we might go into our rooms like, oh Lord, I should not have eaten a dozen of those donuts. And then we need to like wait and see, well, is God going to forgive us or not? And we can kind of like, mm, maybe. Maybe I feel better now. Maybe after an hour or two or sleep it off. Or after you run around, like get all the sugar out of you, then you feel better. Like, oh, God must have forgiven me by now. Maybe. 
but it's kind of a gamble. So should we even gamble on it? If you rob a bank, you say, God, forgive me, robbing banks, stealing from poor people, their money, their hard-earned savings. Should we just gamble on that? Um, hmm. If you will, here's another analogy. God has asked us to build uh, a house fitting for him out of who we are as human beings. He's asking for us to build ourselves into a house fitting for, for his holiness. So if you have to build a house, would you just use rickety hand tools to build a house? Or would you rather not use power tools? In a sense, the sacraments are like power tools in our toolbox to build our house. We use time-saving devices. Why shouldn't we use soul-saving devices? That's what the sacrament of penance is. So if we think that forgiveness is such an easy thing for God to just dole out, in a sense, it is for God. God does not lose sweat uh, out of anything, so to speak. But if we look at salvation history, God did not think it was sufficient to just mentally, invisibly forgive us, for him to just kind of be up in heaven, so-called, and just forgive us for robbing banks because we go and pray in our rooms. He could have done that. He could have infused in our consciences uh, that we'd been instantaneously forgiven and restored to grace with him. He could just put into our heads, you're all forgiven, just like that. But if we look at salvation history, God thought that forgiveness was so, uh, somehow so important and involved that it was necessary for God to become human in Jesus Christ, for him to teach us for three years' time, and then to suffer and die on the cross for us. That's a lot of blood and sweat and tears for forgiveness to take place. So reconciliation entailed more than a snap of the fingers, including God's fingers, so-called. So the challenge is really not on God's part, it seems. It's more on our part. We are not easily transformed in a flash. Forgiveness and transformation take time. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we maybe ask if we just go into our rooms and we ask God uh, to forgive us for all of our sins, and then we leave our rooms, uh, typically do we manifest afterward a holy way of life? If we just kind of like presume forgiveness, do we or others honestly change significantly afterward? Chances are not, which may be a sign that perhaps God's grace is not at work. So there are a number of reasons why we would do the sacrament of penance. First off, Jesus says so. There's a Christological command to this. And for this, I want to make note of a couple of citations from Scripture, which I put on uh, the bottom of the first page of my handout with a wonderful diagram up on the top. So again, the big picture is that salvation history involves God's attempt to heal the friendship severed or wounded by sin. So God the Father sent his Son incarnate as Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and to restore friendship with him. We see how much salvation history recorded in the New Testament involves this issue of sin and God's desire to forgive us from sins. Jesus forgave sinners. Sometimes there were Jewish leaders 
who are recorded as objecting to this, but Christians accept that Jesus forgave sins and could forgive sins. It's integral to the notion of Jesus as our Savior. But a second issue involved in the New Testament is whether Christians can forgive in the name of Jesus. So not just can Jesus forgive, but can Christians forgive? And the answer is yes. What's involved here is repentance. The Greek word for that is metanoia. It's a word that occurs frequently in the New Testament, 58 times. Jesus commands his sinners, excuse me, Jesus commands his followers to repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15, as I put in your handout. So Jesus commands that his listeners should convert from their sins and their sinfulness. And furthermore, Jesus enlisted other Christians, other followers, other disciples in the forgiveness of other persons. We see this in the gift of forgiveness, the ministry of reconciliation, according to St. Peter. So after Peter affirmed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to Peter, as I put on your handout there from Matthew 18, Jesus said uh, to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever, excuse me, I didn't put this one on your handout. Excuse me, hold on a sec. This is Matthew 16. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So St. Peter is given the ability to bind and loose from heaven. That's the gift of reconciliation with God. But then furthermore, Jesus does not limit this ministry to Peter. Here, as we see in Matthew 18, which is on your handout, Jesus extends this ministry to the other apostles. He says, quote, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this notion of the keys of the kingdom are a gift to the entire church. The keys are the church's general ability to forgive sin and give grace. That's true for all the sacraments, but indeed, especially for the church's means of sanctification from mortal sin, which would be baptism and penance. So repentance is not just a personal responsibility, but it's also a communal ministry. Jesus institutes a ministry of penance. He commands his followers to continue his ministry of inviting others to convert and to repent. So we see this as an Easter grace. The next quotation I put on your handout is from Easter Sunday, John 20. We read Jesus saying, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them, the apostles, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So Jesus has given us a means to obtain divine forgiveness through selected human leaders, the apostles, and their successors, the bishops, 
and their helpers, the priests of the church. All of us, whether we're priests or not, are also enjoined to make use of this communal means of forgiveness. So from the letter of St. James, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. End of the quotation. And we're encouraged to help others to repent. So also on your, on your handout, letter of St. Paul to the Galatians, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now this forgiveness process is an essential part of history right now. Part of what's going on in history is that Christ has ascended into heaven but we know that he is going to come again. And the second coming is actually delayed so that we can repent, so that we can welcome Christ worthily when he comes again. We see this in the last quotation that I put on your uh, handout from the scriptures, top of page two from second letter of St. Peter. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is giving us time to repent. So what do we see from all this? We see that Christ's ministry of repentance, of preaching and bringing about repentance, leads to the church's ministry of repentance, and then finally the Christians, all Christians' ministry of repentance and forgiveness. We all are involved in this process. And that's what's been lived from the earliest days of the church. We have indications of a formal process for post-baptismal forgiveness of sins very early in the history of Christianity. Indeed, in the very first post-biblical text, what's called the Didache, which is from about the year 90, uh, we hear the following, which I put in your hand out there. Every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profaned. So in there, I haven't given you all the Greek there, but I just transliterated it for you. They should give thanksgiving after having confessed confess there. The, the Greek original there is this phrase eximologesis, which is the term for this formal process of asking for forgiveness and being reconciled to the church. It's the sacrament of confession. It involves the public confession of our sins or the recognition that we are sinners and need forgiveness. We see this also, for instance, from the third pope, Pope St. Clement of Rome, in his first epistle to the Corinthians, writing it around the year 96. He's dealing with a uh, situation of schism where there's a, a break in people in terms of their unity in the church. Uh, he says there, ye therefore who lay the foundation of this sedition, submit yourselves to the presbyters and receive correction so as to repent. The Greek there is metanoia. Bending the knees of your hearts, learn to be subject, laying aside the proud and arrogant self-confidence of your tongue. 
For it is better for you that you should occupy a humble but honorable place in the flock of Christ than that, being highly exalted, you should be cast out from the hope of his people. So this process of conversion, of eximologesis, of the public confession of our sins, of asking for forgiveness, this is a term and a reality that's seen in the early centuries of the church throughout the historical regions of the church. We see it being used in North Africa, in Greece, in France. It's all over. What we see here is that Christ enjoins us to have a conversation, to get involved in this confession, this verbal conversation, whereby we ask for forgiveness. And we do so in a set pattern, according to a certain structure. God has asked us, Christ has asked us to ask for forgiveness, not as we see fit, but as he sees fit. So we have to use the priestly ministers that Christ has given to us for forgiveness. We have to go to certain persons and ask in a certain way. And that brings about the certain restoration of friendship with God and our neighbors. So Christ has commanded us. Jesus has taught us to do this. But we also need to go deeper and think, why would Jesus do it this way? Ultimately, Christ's command reflects our human nature, reflects how we are as human beings. So for instance, a second reason why we do the sacrament of confession is because of our physicality. We are physical beings. We're not just spiritual beings. We sin in the flesh. So for instance, I've heard it's illegal to go swimming in the Jaqua. Uh, I don't know if it's really that big of a deal, but I've heard it's like you know something you're not supposed to do, which I guess is like you know some um, student center. And um, so I guess if you get caught, you get in trouble. I don't know what happens, but or again, like going to Voodoo Donuts and eating too many Voodoo Donuts, um, something like that. Again, Voodoo actually Voodoo Donuts is even better example. Uh, eating a dozen of those, there's like a physical aspect to the sin of gluttony. Like you feel it. Um, Jesus, in his passion, death, and resurrection, he worked out in his own flesh the general conditions for forgiveness. But then Christ's forgiveness is applied to us physically through the church's sacramental rites, including the physicality of vocal confession. So one can go to uh, the priest and say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I've committed the sin of gluttony by eating a dozen voodoo donuts or two dozen or whatever, whatever it would mean to do gluttony with voodoo donuts for one person. Maybe different for a football linebacker or lineman compared to, I don't know, someone who weighs 80 pounds. So physicality, the physicality of the sacraments responds to our physicality and how we sin physically. So we have to physically vocalize our repentance in confession. There's also a social reason for the sacrament. Every sin is social and wounds other human beings. Sometimes people talk about secret sins. But even secret sins, so-called secret sins, are social. 
every sin lessens the sinner as a human being. Now, insofar as Christ has called us to be saints and to love our neighbors as our best selves, even so-called secret sins detract against that, go against what Christ wants for us. So, for instance, if a person is wasting his or her time sinning alone, so-called, in his or her bedroom, that person certainly is not being of any positive service to God and neighbor. And some of those secret sins can deaden our personalities. So they're like drugs, turning our souls to mush, turning our minds to mush. And they prevent us from doing great things in the church and society. If your mind is mush, you can't be great. Like great mush is not great, it's just mush. So we want to be great, we don't want to be mush. So the sacrament of confession counteracts the, the antisocial behavior that is sin. It forces a good social interaction, the interpersonal expression of one's sorrow, and the reception of forgiveness from the church. In this, having a priest as a minister is very helpful. If one thinks about sin, there can be multiple persons, multiple injured parties involved in a sin. God can be injured, uh, offended, the church as a whole can be offended. Individual persons can be offended. But there can be different abilities to communicate with those persons and to ask for forgiveness. So for instance, with God, there's this divide between God and us in terms of he's God and we are creatures and it's kind of, we can talk with him, but usually he doesn't like shout out, you know, answers that we can vocally hear and understand. The church is a big entity, so if we sin against the church, you know, we can try to talk to all one billion Catholics or, you know, that, that's a lot of people. Like, you need a lot of Facebook friends to do that. <laughs> really tough. Uh, or we can talk to the individual persons we've offended, but, like, let's say you've run over, you know, your friend Joe's foot, or your, oh, no, it was his toe, Joe's toe. Joe's toe, remember? Well, maybe Joe is hopping mad. Like, he's, he's, he's like, does not want to talk with you because you run over his foot, uh, his toe, excuse me, his toe, Joe's toe, <laughs> Joe's toe. He doesn't want to talk with you right now. So how are you supposed to ask for forgiveness if he doesn't want to talk with you right now? So sometimes we must admit that it's sometimes difficult to go to an injured party and ask for forgiveness. And so it's really quite generous on Christ's part that he's given us a priest that we can ask for forgiveness as the representative for everyone else, including God, including the rest of the church, including Joe and his toe. Uh, in a sense, the church is all for one and one for all. The church gives God's forgiveness and everyone else's forgiveness. And that responds to kind of our social interpersonality or our interpersonal network. Another reason for a confession is a question of knowledge, something I've referred to already. You can ask God to forgive you and he could forgive you, but how would you know that you're forgiven? Lots of people uh, can think that God is speaking to them, but it could be that they've just been to one of the local breweries for too long, you know, too long of the night and they've had too much to drink, 
And it's really not God speaking to them. It's just, I don't know, their friend telling them to wake up and you know, get sober. So as an act of mercy, Christ gives us a priest, another human being to talk to. Again, as a, as a minister, as a mediator. It's much easier to talk to a priest and to get a concrete answer of forgiveness. So the sacrament gives us a known structure, something concrete to do, something that's not beyond our reach, something that's relatively easy. We all can communicate. We talk to a priest, it may seem intimidating, but it's not like you need to climb a mountain. It's not like you need to rush a fraternity or sorority. It's not a popularity contest. You just talk with a priest. And frankly, you know, the priest wants to forgive us too. God wants us to be free. The priest wants us to be free from our sins. Confession is about freedom and knowing that we are free. Lastly, let's talk about how we can grow in the sacrament. How can we become better penitents? We need to recognize that there's great glory in being a good penitent. Is there shame in being a penitent? Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't go out and like try to rob banks. We shouldn't try to sin. The whole point is to be a saint. But if we have committed sins, it's not the end of the story unless we don't ask for forgiveness. If we stay stuck in our sin, yeah, that could be the end of the story. But great saints can come from great sinners, and there can be great glory in being a former sinner. There's this great quotation from our patron of the Thomistic Institute, St. Thomas Aquinas. It's the last quotation I put on your handout. Uh, he's talking about uh, the loss of dignity that can occur with sin. But I want to, for the sake of time, just kind of move things along to the last couple of, of uh, lines of the quotation. Thomas says, uh, the, the, the repentant sinner, recovers something greater sometimes, because as St. Gregory the Great says, those who acknowledge themselves to have strayed away from God make up for their past losses by subsequent gains, so that there is more joy in heaven on their account, even as in battle the commanding officer thinks more of the soldier who, after running away, returns and bravely attacks the foe than of one who has never turned his back but has done nothing brave. So for those of us who have fallen into sin, if we bravely respond to God's grace of forgiveness and say, I am going to take up the banner of Christ and strongly lead a life of holiness, as Jesus says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over a repentant sinner than over the 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. So there's great glory that's possible for us as brave penitents, soldiers in the battle who say, I'm leaving behind the life of sin. I am going to be a great repentant saint. So, in order to be glorious, brave penitents, we first need to ask God for help. We always start with God. God's at the top of my wonderful, fantastic diagram for important reason. God is always the initiator. 
He's always the one that brings about holiness. And he wants to give us that grace. He wants to give us that holiness. So we ask God for help. God, help me to be holy. Help me to repent from sin. Help me to live the straight and narrow, going straight to you on the highway, rather than swerving, and rather than doing any UE 180 turns. Secondly, we remember that God does not save us without us. We remember that the sacrament of penance is a consolidation. God is involved, the priest is involved, we penitents are involved. So, if you need help, you can ask the priest for help. He's part of the equation. He wants to help you. You ask your friends for help. You can have what I call nowadays accountability partners. You can say, hey, buddy, I have this problem. Whenever I walk past a bank, <laughs> my fingers start to itch because I can just feel my fingers turning the tumblers on the safe, and I can feel like the numbers going into the right place and just walking out with a million dollars or a billion dollars. So, buddy, when we walk past banks, just kind of like pull my jacket along and like help me get past the bank. Okay, our friends help us. That's good. If you need help, ask a friend. Just like if you need help, no cheating here. If you need help, you know, trying to understand a problem set, uh, or not a problem set, uh, what's, what's not, you got an assignment like math or like science or something or other, like things you're studying, and you need help. So you ask a friend, like, how does this work? Quantum mechanics, like, how does this work? What's this cat of Schrodinger's wave equation, like cats or something? Why are there cats? Why not dogs? Why not ducks? Certainly not beavers. They're from Oregon State. OK, in any case, you ask a friend for help. So ask friends for help. Ask priests. They're your friends. They want to help. Recognize, too, that most of us have our ups and downs. Most of us need repeated help. So repeated use of the sacrament of penance makes things easier. So even if you go to confession without the greatest of sorrows, maybe you have not robbed a bank, fantastic. You've not robbed a bank over the last you know, month or two. Great, fantastic. But maybe there's some smaller things that you need help with. You can ask for forgiveness and God will forgive you. And even if you're like, you're struggling with a sin, you're like you're struggling with a vice, like, um, I don't know, our bank robber, uh, he's like, well, I didn't rob a bank this time, but I robbed my brother's piggy bank. And it's got bank in it, Father, and it's a piggy bank, and it was a big piggy bank, and it was, you know, $100. Okay, I should not have stolen from my brother from his piggy bank. Well, no, you shouldn't steal. But, so you get help. So go to the sacrament, even if you've not robbed big banks, but even robbing your brother's piggy bank, you don't want to do that either. So the sacrament helps as we use it, as we repeat uh, the use of the sacrament. From repeated help, one can grow in saintliness. We certainly should exercise the virtue of gratitude. We need to recognize the gift of forgiveness that's been given. We need to thank God and not, be, uh, not practice the vice of ingratitude. Ingratitude is when we kind of reject 
the forgiveness that's been offered to us, and in a sense kind of go back on the gift of forgiveness. If you need a patron saint for this, Saint Mary Magdalene is the privileged example of the grateful penitent. She, uh, as the gospel says, uh, was forgiven much, and in turn, she loved much. She was a grateful, repentant sinner, a former sinner, but by Christ, a great saint. Or we can turn to Saint Dismas. Uh, Dismas is the name given to the thief who was crucified with Christ, the thief who was penitent, the one who asked for forgiveness. So Saint Mary Magdalene and Saint Dismas, we ask them to pray for us. In this virtue of gratitude, you can tell others how happy you are that you have gone to confession and been forgiven. And you can bring others to the sacrament so that they too can share this wealth. It's a good idea to pray the glory be prayer, glory be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Notice that prayer, which can be said before confession and certainly after confession, it's all about thanking God. There's no me in the glory be. It's about God. It's about having gratitude. That's fantastic. And lastly, I would be remiss if I did not extol and suggest to you the sacrament of the Eucharist. The sacrament of the Eucharist is Christ truly and substantially present to us. Uh, we should try to go to Mass and receive Holy Communion worldly, certainly on Sundays and Holy Days, but even more uh, any day of the week, the Eucharist is available to us. When we live that Eucharistic life, that aids our penitential life. Penance and Holy Communion go together. Frequent confession and the frequent devout reception of Holy Communion are normal ways for us to grow in Christian holiness. In conclusion, social distance is hard, but sinful distance is harder. God wants to make reconciliation happen. And the sacrament of confession helps us to overcome that separation. True reconciliation requires effort and sacrifice on our part, but penance is there to help. Penance will not kill us, it will only help us. Indeed, it is the best medicine. Thank you for your attention this evening. I don't know in terms of Q&A uh, what possibilities exist, but I'm happy to answer any questions uh, for I don't know how much time. Uh, or if people, if people need to leave, certainly I guess they're free to. You're always free, especially, especially you know, here. But if people, if people want to stick, for, stick around for a Q&A, I'm happy to entertain them. Uh, According to our, our president. Okay. Also, when you hear the question, please repeat it so that way for the recording. Okay. All right. So, um, you mentioned John 20 and uh, if Matthew 16, 18, and John 20 all refer to Christ's giving to Peter and the apostles, uh, the ministry of forgiveness, uh, how or why is the priest involved and not just bishops? So priests are uh, co-workers with bishops um, for certain but not all sacraments. Uh, 
certainly all forgiveness takes place under the um, um, oversight and the um, uh, role of the bishop. So a priest is given by ordination a share in uh, the gift that the bishop has fully. But for any normal, let's say any Joe Schmo priest, like I'm just a father Joe Schmo priest, just like a normal priest, I'm not a bishop. But from ordination, I have the capacity to forgive, but that has to be done in cooperation and only by the delegation of a bishop who is a success successor of the apostles. So for instance, one, when a priest is ordained, um, most people don't know this, but when a priest is ordained, he actually has to receive from either the pope, who is a, a, a bishop, and bishop responsible for the entire world, or from some other bishop, he has to receive what's called a delegation or a grant uh, in order to forgive people's sins. Now, the pope has arranged for that to happen at certain times when people are in danger of death, but normally, for let's say normal occasions, every priest, including myself, and any Joe Schmo priest, has to be working in cooperation with a bishop who is above him for forgiveness to take place. And that recognizes the, the question that you bring up, uh, given that it seems as if Christ uh, um, initially and, and most directly gives the ministry of forgiveness to the apostles and their successors, the bishops. So for instance, myself, as a priest uh, stationed in the Archdiocese of Washington, I have that power to forgive from the Archbishop of uh, Washington and his delegates. Yeah. Other question? Yeah, I wanted to ask, um, so like assuming regular confession, like you get that it's good, go, you know all these, that it's good, um, is there, I wanted to ask, is there actual forgiveness from God present in like a nightly exam or after you sin and you immediately repent and Lord, I'm sorry for eating these 12 yeah. donuts. Um, is there forgiveness in that? How much is there? How yeah. does that work? So the question is, okay, uh, if someone has sinned, can they be forgiven? Is there forgiveness in an examination of conscience or a prayer of forgiveness, an act of contrition? The answer is yes, there can be, but what level is involved is uh, we don't know. Uh, we know that uh, an act of contrition can forgive us totally of our sins. But for that to happen, God has to give us the grace. The, the fantastic thing about the sacrament of penance, and this is, I'm glad for the question because it helps me to uh, maybe um, clarify something or say something that maybe should have been clear. Uh, the sacrament itself, is a sure communication of the grace of forgiveness by our doing the acts involved, as long as we are sincere, which itself is a gift of God, then the grace of forgiveness is necessarily given. So by the fact that we do the rite of confession, by the fact that we do the acts of the sacrament, we are given the, sac we are given the grace of forgiveness. That's not necessarily the case if we just kneel down by our bedsides and say a prayer of, of repentance before God. If we do a nightly act of examination of conscience or an act of contrition or something of that sort. So whereas the sacrament itself has a necessary 
communication of grace, the necessary sharing, partaking in God's life of holiness that does forgiveness, does forgive us of our sins. That's assuming you have like an actually contrite heart. You can't just like actually go in there and have acid for lack of a better term, I guess. You can't have what? Like an actually contrite heart when yes. you go into confession. Yes. Like assuming you go in there and you're not like truly sorry for the sins that can't be forgiven in that? Yes. Or like it's not for us to Okay, so the, the question I think is, can one ask a priest for forgiveness in confession uh, without sincerity? So confession uh, presumes sincerity, contrition on our parts, on the penitent's part. If the person is just faking it, if the person does not have sincerity, if they're not contrite, in that case, there is not forgiveness because there's not that first part on my handout, way at the bottom, if there's not that contrition on the penitent's part, you don't have one of the essential ingredients. So you need all those ingredients that are listed there for the sacrament to work. You need sorrow on the penitent's part, that's contrition. He needs to confess his sins. Uh, he receives, he promises to do satisfaction, he's going to do it. And then the priest has to give absolution, forgiveness. All those things need to take place for the sacrament to uh, work, for forgiveness to be given, for the upward uh, movement to occur. If someone, uh, as sometimes happens, uh, there was a famous case back in the 90s uh, in New York City. Like, it was like a radio shock jock, uh, you know, these like radio um, you know, talking heads. Uh, uh, I'm sure things are very calm and, and things are always very calm in Oregon, probably. But in New York, you know, they can get feisty, you know, like they're New Yorkers. So some shock jocks uh, sent in play actors into St. Patrick's Cathedral to go to confession uh, to the priests, and they recorded it, and it was just, it, they were making a mockery out of it. It was just, it was, it was just a stunt for publicity and to like play on the air. There was no contrition there. There was no sincerity. There was no sacrament that took place. Even if the priest didn't know that it was a trick, uh, there, was no, there was no forgiveness. There was no sacrament involved there. It was just, it was just uh, a play-acting stunt of the worst sort. So when the Cardinal Archbishop at the time found out, Cardinal O'Connor, he, he got on the radio too, and, he, and the news stations, and he you know, denounced it you know, with all of his thunderous uh, uh, oratory. So I remember when that happened when I was uh, a teenager. So, other questions? How do we move from uh, public confession in the early church to private confession now with a very strong seal of confession? What was the theological reason behind that? So the question is, in the early church, uh, confession was more public, uh, and now confession is more private. I need to make a distinction now and explain that a bit. So in the early church, it was more that uh, it was known publicly who was living a life of penance, uh, whereas the actual confession of, was, of one's sins was done privately, secretly, to a bishop or uh, his presbyters, his priests. But confession was uh, more for uh, really big sins, especially uh, idolatry or falling away from God uh, in terms of uh, the practice of the faith, 
uh, or murder or adultery. Uh, and then other big sins increasingly. So if one did those sins, one had to live a life of penance publicly, uh, uh, sometimes for several years, uh, and everyone would know, oh, um, this guy Vinny, he must have done something because he's living the public life of a penitent. He's wearing sackcloth, he's putting ashes on his head, he's not able to receive Holy Communion. Uh, we see him kneeling outside the church when the bishop walks by. We know he must have done something. We don't know what exactly, because that was secret. That was told just to the bishop. He must have done something. Um, and then over the life of the church, there was kind of, let's say, a, a, a lived experience that, well, maybe there's a better way to do this. So especially with the influence of what are called the Irish or the Gaelic uh, or the Anglo-Saxon uh, experience in the sixth and later centuries of the penitential process becoming more private uh, and the people not having to identify as publicly that they were uh, repentant sinners, things gradually got transformed so that they are as we have it now, where a person can go totally privately to a priest, the priest can give a, a work of satisfaction where it's not known that Vinny robbed banks. So maybe Vinny robbed banks in a former life. Uh, Vinny robbed banks for the mafia, but now he's gotten out of that. So now Vinny's living a good holy life, but Vinny is saying prayers in repentance for having robbed money from you know poor ladies um, but Vinny does not have like an armband on his shoulder saying like public sinner sort of thing everyone just knows him as Vinny yeah. so kind of expanding on that it seems like nowadays and I don't exactly know what it would have changed but almost every time I mean I feel like this is a common experience when you go to confession your act of penance, your act of contrition, after you say it, then it's like the, the satisfaction you're supposed to make is like, go pray three Hail Marys, or go pray an Our Father, Hail Mary, and a Glory Be, or something like that, or go pray for this particular people, pray a, dec pray a decade of the rosary. Like, it seems as if we, like you just explained how punishments kind of were softened to some degree, but now it feels as if they may be almost too soft. So the question is, I don't know if it was a question or a, a statement, uh, but I think there was a question in it. I think the, que I think the, the statement may be that um, if one is, if, if penances, if the satisfaction, if the satisfactory penances that people tend to be assigned by the priest in confession tend to be, let's say, on the lighter side than they were 1,500 years ago, uh, I think the, the, the impression is, or I think the question is, are they too light now? Uh, maybe part, uh, uh, it's possible, it's possible that there can be penances that are too light. Uh, the flip side would be though, maybe in our society, the, the bigger problem is that people need to uh, know about God's love and mercy and to live the Christian life uh, rather than, uh, let's say, challenging them 
with heavier penances. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's always a balance trying to figure out what can we do uh, in repentance for our sins as satisfactory penances. Just by the fact that the priest assigns one Our Father and one Hail Mary, for instance, doesn't necessarily mean that we should just kind of, you know, just leave it at that. Uh, certainly in terms of the, the assigned penance, we should do it. But the life of penance and the virtue of penance means that we can do other penances, and perhaps we should do other penances, uh, just as part of our growth in holiness and our living of this sorrow that we have for our sins. So it's not as if, let's use, let's use uh, Vineyard Bank Robber as an example. Um, or, yeah, I mean, we've talked enough about voodoo donuts. Um, well, hmm. Now let's do something closer to home. Um, let's say someone has uh, spent a lot of time wasting time, uh, years, just playing video games or drinking or getting stoned on marijuana. Um, when one has come out of that, come out of the fog even, out of the daze and the confusion, one may realize, whoa, I've wasted a lot of opportunity to do good in this world. So, okay, I go to confession. The priest assigns me one Our Father and one Hail Mary. I do it. That's good. I should do it. But one has a sense, no, I need to give back to God and to society for all the time that's been wasted. Uh, I can't just, you know, sit on my, I can't, I can't just sit on my couch anymore. I need to get up and, you know, like, be an active, proactive Christian. I need to get out there. Uh, so that kind of impulse can be part of our repentance. Doesn't mean that we have like set things that the priest has assigned to us we need to do. We don't, we've, we've done it already. But it doesn't mean that, you know, after, um, I don't know, what's, what's going to be our name for the guy who sits on the couch? He's uh, been playing video games for 20 years. Um, I don't know. Dunstan. Dunstan was kind of like a dunce and, 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 and playing video games for 20 years and being stoned and drunk the whole time. So now he just, he, he, he's, he's moving into action. He knows he's got to be of service. Um, because, he is, because he has been forgiven and he knows he's been forgiven and he knows uh, that he is capable of greatness. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, get, let's see if there's anyone else has a question, not to deprive others of opportunities. Uh, okay, well, that's it. then you get it. I want, you had uh, mentioned that in confession we're freed from eternal punishment. So I just wanted to clarify exactly what that means. So, when you, like, if I go to confession tonight and at the moment when the priest absolves me, would I be clean enough to go into heaven? Or, with, or does that involve, like, no, I would still need to go to purgatory, like, hypothetically, obviously, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. Do you look like a Vinny the, you know, <laughs> bank robber? Or I don't know. Do I? Dunstan the dunce? Uh, I don't know. Vincent would always ask if I robbed any banks. Okay, wow. I, well, I don't know. 
no, no comment on that. Okay, so the question is, the question is, uh, the sacrament of penance remits, forgives uh, eternal punishment. Uh, does that mean that one is going, if, if one is forgiven and one dies right afterward, uh, is one going straight to heaven? And the question, and the answer is maybe, maybe not. Uh, so, I didn't get into it, but the sacrament of penance uh, in forgiving uh, our, our eternal punishment, that means that we are in friendship with God, uh, we are in union with God, but it doesn't mean that everything is perfect in ourselves. There is something called temporal punishment, which is uh, a reflection that sin has temporal effects in our physical bodies, in our physical world, and that we need to do temporal punishment. We need to remit that. We need to do a kind of a, there needs to be a kind of restoration of the temporal order, the physical order, uh, which also is a kind of spiritual thing. Uh, that can take place over time. So that's why it's called temporal punishment. So purgatory is a kind of uh, a state, a temporary state, a kind of temporal punishment for those who are friends with God, but they need to be purified and strengthened uh, in order to be worthy of the presence of God fully in heaven and the presence of the angels and saints. So those who are in purgatory, they're happy, and they rightfully so are happy because they know they're going to heaven. They are united with God in that respect. But they need to uh, be further transformed. So for instance, um, Vinny, our bank robber, uh, Vinny, he he has, remember, that tendency I talked about? Uh, you know, he gets a tingling feel, uh, feeling when he walks past a bank. So let's say he doesn't walk past the, maybe he doesn't rob banks anymore, but he still has that tingling feeling. He's kind of got the itch. He's kind of got that tendency. And all of us can have that tendency for sins that we've done in the past and we've got a vice in us, and it's difficult to root out those vices, but we don't want those tendencies to sin, those temptations still in us. So that tingling tendency that Vinny has to rob banks, that needs to be purified out of him. And purgatory is for that, those sorts of things. Uh, let me just say one thing too. Um, I should mention, someone raised the, the, the aspect of the seal of confession. So the seal, for those who don't know, the seal means that the priest can never say uh, to anyone else what our sins are. And that was true way back in the early church. That's also true now. So anything that we, uh, the sins that we confess to a priest in confession, uh, he can never talk about that uh, uh, on pain of what's called excommunication. So it's a really big sin, moral sin, big time sin. Uh, uh, only the Pope uh, uh, and his special delegates can forgive that uh, sin. Um, and frankly, I think uh, most, uh, you know, uh, um, 
even priests who um, leave the priesthood for whatever reason, it's for, those are not fun cases. There's sometimes there's scandal involved. But I raise it only because um, even in those cases where priests reject their priesthood very sadly, you don't hear them going around blabbering about like what they heard in the confessional. Uh, there's a kind of a basic human dignity that most everyone recognizes. When uh, penitents confess their sins, there's a vulnerability there, and we need to keep that uh, secret. And frankly, I'll say this too to conclude, in terms of the seal of confession, uh, as a priest, it's a lot easier to keep the seal than, than people who are not priests may think. People may think, oh, I'm confessing my sins, and Father definitely is going to be able to remember all of them, because I remember all of them. But the fact of the matter is, for most things, it's like in one ear and out the other as a priest. Because one, it's just like sin is monotonous, it's boring. Uh, we've heard it a zillion times. Um, and especially if the confession is anonymous, it's just kind of like, oh, there's all these things. And it's just kind of like throwing in like different colors M&Ms into a big jar. It's like, well, does, is this red M&M from this person or that person? You know, where's that blue M&M from? I don't know. It's just there. There's like tons of blue M&Ms in there. So like this, these people are confessing robbing banks and, they, and they're confessing eating too many voodoo donuts and uh, swimming in the J-Claw and getting drunk and you know, crazy frat parties. It's like, who did what? I don't know. And, at the, and they don't care. We don't care. We, what we care about is giving Christ mercy. Um, so the seal confession, it's great. It helps us. But unfortunately, there's often a lot of um, worry about priests remembering stuff and like blabbering stuff when really um, one of the graces of the sacrament from the priest's perspective is that our memories uh, get very bad uh, <laughs> for these sorts of things. It's like, I don't know. What a person forgets? I don't know. It's like, whatever. OK, very good. Thank you for your attention and coming out this evening. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.